God's Word, the book of Revelation, just two verses this morning. Just two verses, Revelation chapter 14, I'll begin reading in verse 6, and I'll read to verse 7. Revelation chapter 14, uh, verses 6 and 7, we see one of three angels here uh, making announcements, proclaiming something here in relationship to the gospel of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, a short, yet glorious revelation to us this morning. That we might come to see your gospel as it is, where it is from, who it is for, and what it will do. That ours is no impotent kingdom, for our king is all-powerful. And according to the glory of his resurrection, he will raise us up on the last day. And until that day comes, we see his kingdom spread throughout all the earth. No vain religion, no empty works, but a kingdom that cannot be shaken, an everlasting, ever-expanding, transforming, conforming gospel. What a glorious truth you have given to us. May we hold fast to it. And learn it even better this morning, we pray, according to your matchless name, the name of Christ, the Lamb, slain before the foundations of the world, our King. Amen. This morning we find an angelic proclamation of the divine gospel given to the dwellers of earth, so that those who are sinful, for we all are, and separated from God due to our sin, might be redeemed. Of the gospel this morning, we learn where it comes from, what it is, what it does, who it's for, and how we ought to respond. This is the power that moves the kingdom of Christ forward. And it is what makes the saints of God different one city against another. That kingdom of righteousness and that kingdom that John would later call Babylon. Not a real city alone, but of a people who reject the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at that next week, but for now, let us focus upon those people and the God who gives them hope through his gospel. Two points that I want to make this morning. The first... The gospel of heaven. 
the gospel of heaven, and then secondly, the call of that gospel. The call of that gospel. Let's look at that first point then. Have you all memorized that by now? Let's look at that first point. You know, there's those things that every pastor says over and over. I've tried to figure out different ways to say it. I can't come up with anything. The gospel of heaven. Now, there are really, you might say, on one hand, two gospels. And because of those two gospels, two different kinds of families. Although one of those gospels is no gospel at all, there are two religions, two options, two ways two families, and we see this throughout the scriptures. You've heard it from this pulpit many times, but I would encourage you to commit it to memory, put it in your tool belt, and use it even when you go forth as an evangelist, as an apologist into the world. You need to recognize that all belief is rooted in the revelation of God who is there, who made us and redeemed us, and then there is a belief, a false gospel, that is made up of the imaginations and inventions of men. A pagan parody. It looks a lot like it, but it is distinct in ways that are damning. Two gospels, two nations, two cities. There is the city of Zion, that heavenly city made up of the elect, and then there is the city of Babylon. And this gospel that we find here in verses 6 and 7 is qualified, categorized, described by a number of glorious elements. It is a message of divine power and authority. I would call you to notice where the message comes from. Verse 6, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. It comes forth from God himself. And it is proclaimed as good news was often proclaimed in the word of God. As an announcement. We see this even at the birth of Christ. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before the shepherds. And he began to glorify the Lord. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold... I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then at that point, after that one angel began making that or finished his proclamation, a whole host of angels joined in and began to worship God. It is a glimpse, a tearing of the fabric between heaven and earth as we see Throughout Scripture, even when Jesus was baptized at the Jordan or when Jacob saw that great tower upon which angels ascended and descended and he was looking at Christ himself. This angel is flying and proclaiming an everlasting gospel. It is the message of the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it does not come from men. It is not of earth. It is of heaven, the dwelling place of God. And therefore, it possesses authority, wisdom, light or insight, truth. It does not mean that the message does not come to earth, for that is in the very next line. It comes from heaven to earth. It comes from God. And therefore, when you hear the gospel preached, the first element that belongs to faith and belief and trust is to believe that the very thing 
that is being said to you about Christ is true, it is authoritative, and it comes from God. In fact, Paul speaks of this in Galatians 1 and in 1 Thessalonians 2. In Galatians 1, Paul says, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul heard it preached. He heard it preached by whom? Stephen. Even as he was stoned, prior to that, Stephen gave a most excellent sermon. Of course, Saul or Paul was converted even as he beheld the living Christ. But it does not mean that you do not become a Christian through means, through the preached word of God. But what is essential is that you understand that the gospel are not the words according to Joby or some other man. They are the words of Christ. They are the words of the living God. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul puts a very fine point on that. For this reason, we, Paul, the apostles... Also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Yes, we Presbyterians can say, God has spoken to me through the preached word of God. This is the art of prophesying in the New Testament church. It is the means by which God conveys that which is everlastingly true. It is the Christocentric gospel. Christ Jesus for sinners. And now in this inauguration of a new era and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the destruction of the temple in the wide casting of the net, in the seeking of the salvation of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, the gospel goes forth as an angelic proclamation in the mouths of men. It is an apostolic and everlasting gospel. It is announcement and proclamation. And so this angel that is hovering between heaven and earth is proclaiming the good news. That angels proclaim it is part of their mission. It belongs also to men. Of course, we read elsewhere that when men remain silent, even angels themselves proclaim. And this gospel not only comes from heaven, it is not only worthy of our hearing, we ought to listen, we ought to stand in awe of it, But it never stops growing. It never grows old. A number of years ago, I I think I shared the story of our trip to Yosemite (laughs) and the the difficulty of losing a child. One of the things we also saw at Yosemite once we got past that was the great redwood forests. And we saw not only the redwoods, but we saw the sequoias. You probably have some old trees in your yard, I'd imagine. Some of you may have oak trees that are well over 100 years old or older. Many date these redwoods 2,000 years, which means at the time of Christ's incarnation on earth, a little acorn somewhere in northern California took root in the soil and began to grow. 
And around the time that Columbus first visited the Americas, that tree was already 1,400 years old. At the time of the Reformation, it's 1,500 years old, 1,600 years old. At the time when the pilgrims came to this country, it was still very old. At the time when the Fowlers went to Yosemite, it was 2,000 years old. Big, ancient, the biggest thing I've ever seen in nature in terms of something that grows organically. We did see some of those great sequoias on their side having fossilized, turning almost to stone, many ancient things. In the Gospels, Christ compares the kingdom to a mustard seed. He also compares it to leaven. You know what leaven is, a little bit of yeast? Have you ever seen a little speck of yeast? Maybe you have a bread machine. Maybe you do the whole thing by hand from start to finish. In Mark chapter 4, Christ speaks of the kingdom as a tiny little mustard seed, and he says that seed goes into the ground, and though it begins quite small, it will soon or eventually grow to be the largest tree in the garden. And there, in its large branches... The birds of the heavens are able to be under, they are able to nest in the shade of its limbs. It's a beautiful picture that we do not take seriously. Luke chapter 13, he says, The kingdom of God is like leaven. And that leaven gets worked into the whole lump. And what does it do? Several grains of this, I don't know, it's not grain, little dots of leaven that you work into the bread when given time. That yeast begins to create carbon dioxide as it eats sugar. And it works itself through the whole loaf and it grows. So too the kingdom of heaven. Now you've heard me say, and it's probably fairly explicit to you all by now, this is a conversation I often have today because uh, for many years I was told this was probably not a profitable conversation and I lost a lot of time neglecting the topic, and that is the topic of eschatological views. I don't have a problem if you don't agree with me, but God has called me to be the pastor of this church, and so I'm going to share my opinion with you. (laughs) The reason why I am post-millennial in my understanding of the kingdom is because that particular eschatological view says this, that at the end of the age of men, the kingdom of God will be greater than the kingdom of Satan. Why do I believe this? Because the gospel of Christ is greater than the gospel of men. Because the saving power of the grace of God is greater than the deceptive power of Satan. And because Christ has told us, though the kingdom starts small, it does not stay small. That The gospel tells us where the conflict is focused. And because the gospel of the kingdom comes to us from God, it has the power of transformation. One kingdom will rise, another will diminish. And the grace and power and the glory of the gospel is greater than the work of the one who is but an angel, who has already been cast out of heaven. And so what makes this everlasting gift so good so worthy of our observation, of our hope, of our trust, 
to sing and declare is because it is a gift of good news from heaven to earth. It is an everlasting gospel to be preached to those who dwell on the earth. In fact, if you were planting a church and you were wondering, what are we to do? Above all things, what are we to do as a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ? It begins and it ends with this, with the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the very thing that we gather to hear. It is the very means by which God transforms the nations. And so we sing it. We take it into our hearts. We use it to enlighten our minds. It is a summary of, and it is the sum and substance of all of God's revelation. And what is that gospel? Do you know it? Sometimes we call it the doctrines of grace in the Reformed tradition. TULIP, maybe you've heard that acronym. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. All of these things can really be summarized in these three words. Christ for sinners. That's the gospel. And so if someone asks you, what do you believe the gospel is? You have three words, Christ for sinners. And these three words, when coupled by the working of the Holy Spirit, transforms lives. The reason why it is so good is because it actually accomplishes what God has said it will accomplish. Through the proclamation of the gospel, Christ is bringing to himself the nations of men. It is an enduring message. And it is not only a gospel that is the content of it that goes forth and changes us, but once it has gotten into us, once that leaven has been worked into our hearts, it will never cease working. It perseveres. We will never be cast off. This gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is coupled with a God whose decrees cannot be changed and whose work cannot be thwarted. And there are times in your life, as it was in mine, where you kick and scream against the working of the Holy Spirit because there is sin in your heart that you just love more than the righteousness of God. And God is faithful like a good father to do what? To discipline to bring suffering even, to chastise. Why? Because God is faithful. This is what makes the gospel good, is that God will not let go of us. And because it is for sinners, it is not something that we see like the little planes, you know, that fly over the shore when you're at the beach. Go eat all you can eat crab legs, right? Come get really sick here, is what it should say. Have you ever had food poisoning on the second day of your beach vacation? Here's where you come. It is not in heaven only so that you look at it and marvel it. But what does the word of God say? It is in your very mouths. It is in your very hearts. It is right next to you. It is for those who dwell on earth. 
What that means then is that we are to sow the gospel broadly with every hope and expectation that among those whom we sow the gospel, it will take root because it is here on earth, not merely in heaven. It is therefore not our responsibility to make the gospel powerful in the way that only God can do it. We are not to water it down. We are not to compromise it. For it was always meant to be given to dwellers of earth. God does not need our help to make it cool and hip and relatable, does he? He only needs what? For you to say it. That's it. Just say it. Christ for sinners. And you may say, I don't know how that will work. It's not up to you to know who the gospel will take root in and what it will inevitably end up becoming, but that preaching Christ for sinners will have an effect. And what will that effect be? That among those who dwell upon the earth, Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people will be affected. It is for them, and because it is for them, it is effectual to bring them in. God does not ask us to go out and do a task that has no fruit whatsoever. In fact, it always has fruit. Because the gospel is not only content, it is calling. It is exhortation. And that leads me to my second point then, the call of that gospel. The call of that gospel is found in verse, well, the same section, verses 6 and 7. But knowing that the gospel is for those of earth, we are to go forth into all the world. And so another comment as it relates to eschatology and its relationship to evangelism. Have you all seen the videos where there's a little car, maybe a little two-door Kia, stuck on a side or on a crossing, a railroad crossing? And there it sits, can't get off, and here comes the train. Guess which kingdom is the train? Guess which kingdom is the car? What happens to that car? It just disintegrates. Another proverb I have for you, the kingdom of God is like a freight train. (laughs) The kingdom of Satan is that little Kia sitting across the tracks, When the two come in contact with one another, there's no contest. There's just no contest. It is the obliterating work of the kingdom of darkness on earth. Now, it may not always feel like that, right? In fact, that kingdom sometimes seems to be just plodding along. It is a kind of plodding power, even in your own life. Which is why I call to mind the illustration of those great trees. Your life is but a twentieth of those ancient trees. And even then, if you're blessed, a hundred years is a long life. And those trees will continue to stand. But our lives come and they go. In fact, that that is one of the considerations when it comes to how we are to receive the gospel. Knowing that the gospel is for men, that it is everlasting, that it is ever-expanding, that it will come and it will bring change to the earth, what is the content or what is the simple exhortation 
in response? What is the call to that gospel? Well, we find it in verse 7. This angel, now knowing who it's for, says, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. There are really two elements in our response to the proclamation that are considered faithful responses. The first is to fear God. Now, we hear this a lot. And here, this fear God is divided from give glory to him. Certainly within that heading of fear God, we think of worship him. It is a reverential awe, a reverential trust. And not only that, but the fact that it comes here in Revelation 14, after we have seen the great terrors of the dragon and of the beasts, and of the deception, and of the war, and all of these things, we are told to fear God. Now, why fear God? Because it is easy to grow fearful of men. In fact, maybe you've seen this in the past two years. One of the ways in which men get you to trust them is to get you to fear the things they say you should fear. Because when you can capture the hearts of men, you can provide for them a remedy that will make you put your trust in them. This is not just a matter of health. This is not just a matter of what is good. It is a matter of allegiance. We are to fear God and not the dragon, not the beast of sea or of land. We are not to live in fear of men. If we were to live in fear of men, would we be faithful in holding to or proclaiming the gospel? In fact, this is often the times when you do not speak is when you are afraid of what speaking might do. And yet we are called to do what? To fear God. In Romans chapter 8, as we round out what this idea of fearing God looks like, Paul says in verse 33, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercessions for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul is writing to a people who would be afraid in the face of great tribulation, either at the hands of wicked men or uncertain providence. What does Paul say? You're in Christ. There is nothing to fear. And if you are in Christ, then the very judgment of God that you should be afraid of more than anything else has been taken away. And everything else, in contrast to the wrath of God, is nothing. And if Christ has taken away judgment, and God is happy with you, you have his favor because now you are his adopted child, what else is there? Bring it on is the sentiment that Paul would have us think in our hearts. Just bring it on. For this is the only right response to the message of Christ for sinners. In fact, this is what Mary 
Jesus' own mother delighted in. When she heard and sang that Magnificat, she said, And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Or Luke chapter 12. And Jesus says, I will show you whom you are to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. If you are busy fearing God, it will be awfully difficult to fear men. And so the gospel calls us to see that Christ alone is worthy of our awe and our devotion against the dragon, against the beasts of this earth. It is an exclusive reverence devoted to God. That is one of the calls of the gospel. The other is to give God glory. What does this mean? Do you often recite that catechism even with your children? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him. And we say those words, well, what does that mean? Well, Doug Kelly, frankly, the best commentary I've read on the book of Revelation. Go get Doug Kelly's commentary. It is so pastoral and winsome and whimsical and it's just colloquial. And if you knew Doug Kelly, it's, it is a great expression of, of, of pastoral theology. What Doug Kelly says is, show something of what God is like in the way you live. That is what it means to glorify God. Show something of what God is like in the way you live. And then he asks, is that not a noble challenge? (laughs) Parents, what this means is, if you desire for your children to grow up with a love for the gospel, then show something of what God is like in the way you live. Joy? Righteousness? Conviction? Discipline? We know what the Bible says the gospel is. And so we can be great theologians, but rubbish at glorying in God. We are to devote our lives to him, to sing songs about him and to him, and to sing in such a way that the Grinches of this world, whose hearts are cold, might hear and be transformed. That is what singing does. In fact, when you're sitting here and you're preparing your hearts for worship and the accompanist is playing, this morning as she was playing Holy, 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 I thought, man, now I just want to get up and sing Holy, Holy, Holy. Can we add that to the liturgy? Would that be out of order to just sing more than three? Would we be, (laughs) you know, betraying our Presbyterian roots, all things decently and in order? And to think upon the language of the great psalms and hymns of the faith, And then I hear my children, especially my young daughter right now, singing in the house. There is something about song and music. That we are to worship him in truth. That we are to fear him, that we are to turn our allegiance towards him and knowing what he has done for us we are to sing of him seven times a day. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Seven times a day. What do the dwarves say? 
whistle while you work? Does it not make every menial task more meaningful? When we take the dishes out of the bottom rack and go, all for the glory of God. (laughs) All for the glory of God. Every shovel full of dirt. Every dirty diaper. Every form you have to fill out. All to the glory of God. Why? There are two reasons given that add to this element of glorying. So we have two elements in our response, right? To fear God and to give him glory. Why? Because his judgment is coming. Now is the hour of salvation. You'll hear the revival preacher preach that, and rightly so. And it is in some fashion to strike fear in the heart of the listener. Because you don't know when your opportunities are gone. And that element of unknown should be there, lodged somewhere in your heart. That when the trumpet blasts, that's it. When your time is up, that's it. Now is the time. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now to the Israelite, it meant what? Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple will be torn down. Now is the time to shift your alliances from that which is no saving faith to Christ and his deliverance. And therefore, get out of the city. Get on the boat. Flee from the wrath of God that is to come. And how are we to do that? It's simple. Believe what Christ has said. Trust in him and you will be delivered. 2 Corinthians 6. Paul is taking Isaiah 49 in his mouth and he says, In an acceptable time I heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This morning I hit snooze three times on my watch. Do not do that with regards to your souls. When the Spirit says, come, do not say, "Um, there's some things I still want to just dabble in before I give you charge of my life, Lord. And especially for the believer, it is very easy to say, well, I can always just say what? I'm sorry. For is this not the objection that Paul made? Shall we now who are in Christ Jesus, shall we say, if I sin, I'll make God's grace all the more visible? No. That's terrible logic. It is the ill logic of rebellion. And Isaiah and Paul were appealing to the same reality of Christ's coming. You don't know when he's coming. And even more particularly, you don't know when you're going to die. So now is the time of salvation. Fear God, give glory to him, for his judgment has come. Worship him, for he is your creator. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to make sure your soul is in right order and to worship. Now is the time. He is our maker. That's what he appeals to as the foundation for worship. Worship him, end of verse 7, who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The dragon didn't make you. The beasts say that you, they own you, right? They tax you. They seek to corrupt your mind with false teaching. They try to make you think that they own you. They don't own you. 
And how many even in our country, in our culture, say what? That the greatest membership of man is the state. What a pitiful existence. What a pitiable existence. But our God made the heavens and the earth. That kind of makes me want to go, what you got? Bring it on. My God is bigger than your God. Let's let them fight, and let's see who wins. You kids who like Pokemon, (laughs) fight. Now, God is not at our disposal in that way, and we ought not think of him in such small terms. But we can go forth into the world, as Paul says, boasting in our weakness because God's power is made sure and all the more glorious because of our weaknesses. We worship him for our, because he is our maker. And what does Athanasius say? In the book on the incarnation, Athanasius says, the only one who is able to remake what was lost in the fall is the one who made us in the first place. That the idea of making and remaking, of creating and recreating redemption are tied together. This is why creation is so essential to the salvation narrative. Because our maker is our redeemer. And so this is our gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that has been revealed to us. It is everlasting. It is ever new. It is ever growing. It is ever transforming. And so John takes a moment here in the middle of the book of Revelation to encourage the saints. This is what makes the city of God what it is. By contrast to Babylon itself. In the horrors of that city, we are those who through Christ Jesus are being saved. Let's pray.